the Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Welcome to a discussion of radical fundamental principles of freedom, rational self-interest, laissez-faire capitalism, and individual rights. The Yaron Brook Show starts now. Everybody, welcome. Today, I'm uh, continuing my Worldwide 2 tour, I guess, of, uh, <laughs> of the world, a tour of the world. Uh, two weeks ago, we broadcast from, uh, where was it? I think it was Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, last week, we broadcast from uh, London, England. And today, we are in Warsaw, Poland. And uh, I will continue that tour next week by going home. It can be nice to be doing this from home where, where I have the whole studio and have it all organized and have it all set up and it's comfortable and, you know, and it's just, it's just about being home, which is, uh, which, you know, which is always, uh, always fun and always good. So finally home, uh, you know, in the, in, in, in the middle of all this, I've, I've been to, uh, a variety of different places. I haven't had the opportunity to broadcast from all of them, but, uh, you know, but today, Today we're in Warsaw. Tomorrow I actually go to Krakow in Poland, uh, where I'm going to give a talk in Krakow. And then from Krakow I'll fly to Madrid. And Tuesday night I will give a talk in uh, Madrid, Spain. And then on Wednesday, just in time for Thanksgiving, I will be flying home, spending Thanksgiving with family and, uh, and friends and looking forward to, to, to a great uh, Thanksgiving meal. And then, um, and then we'll be broadcasting again Thanksgiving, the weekend after Thanksgiving on Saturday. And who knows where we'll go from there. But uh, anyway, Poland, Poland, interesting place. You know, really fascinating. Uh, a lot of changes here. Uh, 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 Poland is very much in, if you will, in transition. And, uh, uh, you know, a lot of things, a lot of things, things happening here, which is, uh, you know, which is exciting. It's exciting to watch. It's exciting to be part of. It's exciting to visit. I, I very much enjoy my visits to Poland. I come here about once a year. Uh, they, 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 I get, I draw large audiences. I draw larger audiences in Poland than I do in the United States of America. Uh, today we had over 200 people at a talk I gave about, uh, inequality, the evil of equality, <laughs> the evil of equality of outcome, the evil of equality, even when conservatives talk about equality of opportunity. Uh, you know, it's a bad thing in, in terms of what they are actually talking about. So, uh, so uh, you know, we, we talked about that, gave a talk, um, great reception, uh, as always, great Q&A. You can actually find all that. You can find the talk. You can find the uh, Q&A, uh, my answers on YouTube. If you go to YouTube and uh, you search my name, uh, you, you know, you will find it. It went up. Uh, it was live streamed, and it and it's up now. Um, uh, also, you should generally. I have I have a very robust YouTube channel. Hopefully, you will subscribe to that channel and um, and, and and catch a lot of the videos that I put out because I put out a lot of videos. At least one a day goes up. Some of them are segments from these shows. Uh, some of them are, are you know a, a, a different, but uh, but good stuff. So uh, I encourage you all to uh, subscribe to YouTube and and follow us. You can actually watch. Uh, this actual show right now, The Blaze, on YouTube. I, I stream it live. I think it's streaming live right now. Uh, for some reason, it's not streaming on Facebook. I think I have a bandwidth problem, and I think the bandwidth is just not enough 
to get uh, to get a, a Facebook signal. But uh, but if if you're next to a computer and you'd rather watch this on or listen on the Blaze or watching video on YouTube, go ahead. Uh, that that is always fun. All right. Uh, Today we've got a lot to talk about, and I want to start by talking about Poland and about the situation here, the challenges that the Poles face, and uh, the opportunities that I think they have. I think there's a reason why so many people come to my talk show in Poland, uh, which has to do with a certain thirst, a certain desire for freedom, for, for the intellectual context for freedom. In some sense, the Poles today have a greater desire for freedom than we Americans do. And, and, uh, I'd, you know, let's, we should, we should talk about that. It's important. If you want to, if you want in on the conversation, if you have questions or if you want to make a comment, you disagree with me or, or you agree with me. Either way, uh, please call in 888-900-3393. 888-900-3393. You're listening to the Ron Brooks show and, uh, please call in. We're talking about, uh, the political situation, the cultural situation the, if you will, advantages and disadvantages uh, that exist here in Poland. And, and, and the big advantage, I'd say there are three, maybe four general trends here in Poland that, that make it interesting. The first one is the Poles know what communism is. <clears throat> they know what socialism is. They're not fooled by, you know, by Bernie Sanders or by Jeremy Corbyn or by these... Uh, these so-called, you know, these modern socialists who pretend that socialism is this benign, wonderful, friendly thing. We all sit around a circle and hold hands and sing kumbaya, and somehow the economy grows, and we get fantastic health care from a socialized health care system, and everything is just wonderful. No. The Poles have lived it. They know that it's a disaster. They know that it leads to nothing but poverty, destruction, and death, death, deaths, you know, probably Millions of Poles died because of the communists. Some of them were just shot. You know, some of them were, were, were died in the gulags, and, and, and potentially some of them even died of starvation because of communism. Certainly to the east and their neighbor in the Ukraine, something like 40 million, yes, that's right, 40 million people died of starvation because of communism. So this part of the world, they have a certain knowledge of what socialism leads to. They know how poor they were. And young people in Poland have, don't want to have anything to do with that. They've rejected that. And they've also, they look around and they see, you know, what their government has done since the fall of the Berlin Wall, since communism has disappeared. And they look at other Eastern European countries and they see what's going on over there. And, and they're fed up. They're, they're sick of the corruption. They're sick of the neither here nor there kind of, a little bit of communism, a little bit of capitalism, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but mostly just corruption. And they're quite educational. They're quite uh, intellectual, I'd say. They, 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 you know, their educational system here is pretty good. And they're thinking. And, 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 they, and they, they desire freedom in a way that I think we in the United States and in Western Europe, eh, we just take it for granted. Yeah, we just, we just have it. We, you know, we don't, we don't need to fight for it. We don't need to educate ourselves about it. And certainly we don't want to be radical about it. We take it for granted. They don't. For them, it's still a struggle. For them, they're still in the midst of what you could consider a revolution. And, uh, and they're interested in radical ideas and they're interested and passionate about liberty and freedom and they're interested and passionate about 
individualism, and, and they might not agree with everything I say, and we'll get in a minute, we'll talk about the two facets of, of, of identity that, that, that have to do with Poland right now, where I disagree with, and, and they disagree with me. But they're willing to listen, and they're willing to be challenged, they're willing to be questioned in a way that, again, I don't think Americans are. And they're ne less enamored with the left, they're less enamored with political correctness, they're le less enamored with, with so social justice warriors, although that also exists in Poland, the, the, the new left, the nihilistic left, the, the, the non-socialist left, because I don't, I don't think, see, I don't think the left in the United States is socialist. I don't think the, the, the people who riot in, in Berkeley are socialists. I, I think they're nihilists. Socialists actually want something. They want a redistribution of wealth. They, they, they want a kumbaya society. But uh, nihilists want nothing. They want to destroy they want to tear down. They want to rip apart. They're not uh, interested in building anything. They're not interested in kumbaya. They're interested in spitting in your face and, and destroying everything you've worked for. That's what they're interested in. That's what the left in the United States is really about. They're not socialists. Socialists would be a compliment. You know, I, I hate socialism, just to be clear. But socialism would be a compliment to the left, the American left, I mean, in its radical form, you know, in its... Uh, radical is too good of a word, in its um, militant form. The militant left, the progressive left in the United States is, is, is nihilistic. Hatred, hatred, focus on destruction, on violence. This is Antifa. Antifa is not anti-fascism. It's anti-life. It's anti-progress. It's an this is, you know, this is the same with kind of the militant environmentalists. They're anti production, the anti-progress, the anti-technology, the anti-human human life. That's the essence of the left. So there's elements of that in Poland. That's kind of another element. So there's an element of of, of this individualistic uh, pro-freedom, pro-liberty, pro-capitalism uh, among young people that are willing to be radical, they're willing to think new thoughts, they're willing to be challenged, they're, they're willing to listen, to listen. And, uh, and to fight, I think. I think they're willing to fight. I think they're willing to organize and to, and to rally and to really, you know, maybe make Poland a, a beacon of freedom in the world. Uh, I, had an, I had a discussion with a young man. Maybe he's not as young as some of the other people in the room yesterday uh, over he was drinking quite a few beers. But uh, in a bar uh, yesterday, kind of a pre-event, uh, the pre-event where I was speaking today, and uh, and he was saying, no, in 20, 30 years, Poland will be known as the beacon of liberty, the beacon of freedom, the beacon of individualism in the world. And my response was, good luck. I hope you're right. I hope there's some beacon because I sure don't think that in 20 years, America is going to be that beacon. Uh, so wherever, I'll take any place. I'm for liberty and freedom. I, you know, geography is less important to me. All right. Um, if you want in the conversation, if you have any questions about uh, – about Poland or about anything else or, or as we uh, develop the show about any of the other topics we discuss, uh, call in 888-900-3393, 888-900-3393. You're listening to Ron Brooks Show on the Blaze Radio Network. PhD, author, media contributor. This is the Yaron Brooks Show, the Blaze Radio Network. You're 
listening to the Yaron Brook Show. All right, we're talking uh, about Poland, partially because I am in Poland, and and I, you know, I experienced this in uh, most Eastern European countries, uh, a certain thirst, a certain desire for liberty that we in America could learn from. Uh, they know, they know what the alternative is, and we don't. We've never lived under socialism. We don't realize how evil socialism is. Young people in America have lousy educations. We, we can talk all day about educational institutions and how pathetic and lousy they are. And uh, they, they, they don't know. They don't know the cost of socialism, and they don't know the benefits of capitalism. And at least in Eastern Europe, they know the cost of socialism. They really know it. You know, with blood, sweat, and tears, they know it. So, um, so you get this, this real striving towards liberty and still striving towards freedom. But more importantly than that, you get, you get an open mind. You have here people who are really open and, and interested in learning and discussing new ideas in ways you just don't see anywhere else. And, and, uh, and to that extent, you know, it, it really is, it really is great. So, uh, uh, you know, I'm always, always, always leave places like Poland more optimistic than when I come in. It's, it's, it's refreshing, and I have to say, in the United States, I'm pretty depressed because we're not open to new ideas. We're not open to being radical. Life is just too good. People are too focused on their own short-term self-interest, and and you know that's fine. I'm I'm a believer in self-interest, although I really would like people to focus on their long-term self-interest rather than just on their short-term self-interest. So, uh, and I think if they did, they would be much more open and much more receptive to. Uh, to the ideas of liberty, the ideas of freedom, the ideas of Ayn Rand, the ideas of Atlas Shrugged. That's what every young person in America should be reading. And and I get a sense that people are reading these books much more frequently these days in Eastern Europe than they are in America, particularly young people. Um, so so that's the one <clears throat> big positive, I'd say, uh, in, in Poland. And by the way, if you want in a conversation, 888-900-3393, it's a U.S. number, so even though I'm in Poland, you don't have to call Poland. You can just call the United States, and I am connected. And, uh, you know, we've already got uh, – we've got to get a, a couple of callers, but feel free to, 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 to keep calling, 888-900-3393. And, and, and Mayank, I think I'm pronouncing that right, maybe not. I, I will be getting to you. I want to talk about Brexit. And Alex, probably be after the next break because uh, you, you're taking us in a new, uh, to some extent, in a, uh, in a new direction. So I, I want to make sure that we finish the direction we're on before we take on more calls. 888-900-3393. All right, so what are the other two, I'd say less positive aspects that you see in Poland and, and really Poles struggling, and particularly young people struggling in Poland? Poland is the only country I know of that has a strong association between their Catholicism and between their perspective of freedom and liberty. And and it's kind of interesting. It has a historical context, I think. And the historical context is that uh, under under the communists, it was the Catholic Church that kind of opposed the communists and, and resisted them. And, of course, uh, Pope Paul, I think it was Pope Paul, who was a Polish pope, and uh, that was a huge point of pride uh, to Catholic Poland, um, not only would they, uh, you know, was he very anti-communist and stood up to the communist regime, and I think inspired Poles. Uh, and and as a and he was he was perceived as a real as a real force for the liberation of Poland, and maybe 
for the fact that the Polish government wasn't quite as harsh on the demonstrators in the 1980s as maybe it would have been if not for the fact that the Pole was the Pope. And as a consequence of that, but I think also as a consequence of history and the fact that this country's always been pretty religious and pretty Catholic, Catholicism is very much associated with liberty and freedom in this country, uh, which I think, I think is, is a shame because I think freedom and liberty are, are fundamentally secular values. Uh, they are values of the Enlightenment. We've talked about this on the show many times. They are values of recognizing the value of indiv an individual in and of himself. And, and Catholicism is very much a hierarchical uh, religion where, where the individual is, you know, knowledge comes from a class of priests who gain their knowledge from a pope who actually communes with God. And it, it's very, there's a lot of hierarchy. There's a lot of hierarchy in terms of knowledge and, uh, and I think that there's a lot less respect for the individual uh, in the scheme of things than I think is required for freedom and liberty. And, and I think that in Poland, it seems to me, every time I, I do a talk here, and by the way, my talk that I did this afternoon is up on YouTube and you can watch it and there's a Q&A and you can see some of the questions in the Q&A. And, and the questions, just like in the U.S. to some extent, always go back to the connection between religion and freedom, and they always try to insist on the connection between religion and freedom. And I, as I've said, I, I'm skeptical. Well, not skeptical. I, I don't believe that connection exists. I think freedom and, 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 and freedom and liberty and uh, their expression, for example, in the Declaration of Independence and the American Constitution are direct expressions of a secular philosophy, of a secular mind, of a secular society which in the Enlightenment during the founding of the country basically relegated religion to one's personal interests and kept it, kept it out of the state and kept it out of the public square. And, and this is why, you know, if you read the uh, Declaration of Religious Liberties in, in the Virginia Constitution, where Jefferson, Jefferson had a free hand in actually writing that constitution, there is a clear wall of separation between religion and states. Uh, I think that's also clear in the, Amer in the, in the federal constitution. Maybe they should have made it clearer. Maybe there's some ambiguity there, and I know a lot of conservatives who argue that it is ambiguous and it's not clear. All right, so, so that's another, that's another element in, in Polish society. So you've got, you've got this, this striving towards liberty among young people. Trying to grapple with religion, particularly Catholicism, on the other hand. And then the third aspect is nationalism, which, which seems to be rising right now as, as a, as an element. And we'll talk, we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit, uh, with, uh, when we talk about Brexit as well. And that is this idea that there's something unique, important, historical, traditional about the Polish state and, and that, that the nation has some, importance above and beyond the individual. And, and, and let me be clear. Let me be clear here. Um, if what you mean by nationalism is a love of country, basically what that means is a love of the kind of the, 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 the culture, the, 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 you know, I don't know, the, the atmosphere, the food, the, 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 the music. The, I mean, that's fine. I, I mean, I, I don't place a huge element of that. If you mean by by, Nash, by 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 loving nation, a love because the, na the nation is worthy, it's it's free, and the people are good, and they have a have a great sense of life, and they love life, and they work hard, and they're productive, like like America, 
You know why I love America is I, is I love the founding ideas, and I love for the most part I love the people. Unfortunately, fewer and fewer people, but 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 I love the people because the people have always been individualistic and hardworking, and 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 they persevere, and they rise to challenges, and they you know they're inspiring. They have this positive, freedom-loving sense of life. Now, again, I think that's disappearing. So I, I can understand loving Poland. You know, in in um, in the in a certain context, right? In a certain context of perceiving Polish values or values of Polish people as positive. But nationalism usually and often and mostly takes the form of placing the nation above the individual, placing the love of nation above anything else, placing the love of nation no matter what the nation represents, no matter who rules it, no matter what the people are like. The nation is an end in itself, and the individual is a means to an end. So it's okay to sacrifice the individual for the sake of the nation. It's okay to tax the individual if the nation needs it. It's okay to place tariffs on, 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 on people in order to help the nation's industry. Not the tariffs help it, but, but, but superficially it seems that way. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's somehow placing national interests above the rights and the interests of its individual citizens. That form of nation nationalism, which I think is growing all over the world, which I think is part of the Polish story, although I'm told by the Poles here that it's not, but you know, but I still think that it's a big part of the of the Polish story. It's part of the American story now. I think I think uh, the whole idea of um, America separate from the rights and value of of individual Americans is is a growing theme among Americans. Uh, sadly. I think it's a theme in England. I think it's a theme, really a theme that's growing all over the world, placing the nation, the tribe, and we'll talk about tribalism uh, maybe later on, placing the nation, the tribe above all else, above individual rights, above the freedom, above the liberty of the individuals, is a very, very, very bad idea. And, and, and indeed, I think goes counter to everything the American Revolution stands for. The American Revolution is a shrugging off of the idea of nationalism. It's a shrugging off of the idea of collectivism. It's a shrugging off of the idea that the individual is beholden to anybody. The individual is an end in himself. The individual has a right to life, his life, liberty, his liberty, and the pursuit of his own happiness. That's the revolution that is the American Revolution. It's the shrugging off of duties to collectives, to authorities, to people in charge, and it's placing the individual as sovereign over his own life for the first time in human history. That's the greatness that was America. That's the greatness that America needs to become again. And, and I tell audiences all over the world, you want to have a revolution, then the revolution is to adopt Jefferson and Hamilton and Madison and Washington. Adopt American founding fathers as your founding fathers. Adopt the founding doc documents of America as your founding documents. Embrace them. Cherish them. In other words, Make your political system, whatever the political system is, around the individual. The essence is individualism, the primacy of the individual. All right, we've got lots of callers. We've got four callers. I don't know. I've hit a nerve with Poland. Um, when we get back, we'll take some of those calls, but please be patient. We'll get to all of you. And uh, we're about to take a, a quick break. This is the Iran Brook Show, and you're listening to the Blaze Radio Network every Saturday. You're on. Brooke. 
on the Blaze Radio Network. Broadcasting today from Warsaw, Poland. If you listen to the Iran Book Show, you get a world tour. I mean, we've been all over the place. Baku, Azerbaijan, and, and uh, Geneva, Switzerland, and who knows where we'll be next year. I'm sure we'll be in a lot of different new places. And, uh, I, you know, I don't think you get that experience anywhere from any other uh, Blaze host, or for that matter, any other radio talk show host. Most, most radio talk show hosts stay home. Not me. I'm constantly on the road uh, and, and sharing my experiences from different parts of the world. Today we're talking about Poland and, and uh, the, the politics. And let me, let me just end on this point. So right now Poland has a government that is primarily uh, nationalist and, and religious. And it's a conservative government. And it, 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 it's doing some good. It, it's at least not some leftist crazy government. But it's also doing a lot of damage, like the American government, like Donald Trump, it has a very false view of nationalism, of economics. It seems like, I don't know, it seems like these days all politicians have become brain dead when it comes to trade. It, it, it seems like people have just, just have willed themselves to uh, completely ignore or, or forget or, or more accurately evade the lessons we have learned from Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations and pretty much every uh, you know every economic thinker uh, uh, of the last 250 years and that is the the huge massive benefits of free trade we're all becoming mercantilists and and suddenly the polish government is embracing elements of mercantilism of protectionism of subsidization of tariffs uh and and it's a disaster and of course donald trump is doing the same and in many other countries around the world are doing the same thing and it, it's just mind-boggling to me that if there was one economic truth that almost everybody understood and accepted just a few years ago, it was the benefits of free trade. No more, no more. You know, and this is why, why I get so pessimistic, because my general sense is that if, if we don't get that, how are we going to get more, um, more important concepts, deeper concepts, more complex concepts? That, that one was relatively, uh, you know, a relatively easy one. So, uh, Anyway, all right. Let's uh, let's take our first caller because this is very relevant to what I just discussed. And and uh, Mayanak, am I am I Mayanak? Am, am I pronouncing that right? Mayank, yes, I see that that is correct. Mayank, okay, hi, from London, UK. Hi, great, uh, great, an, an international caller. That's excellent. Uh, so, thank uh, you for taking my call, actually. And uh, I'm I'm sorry, I actually missed you while you were in London. And, uh, oh, we my, did some great events in London, so, so it is too bad you missed me. I mean, there were a couple of terrific, terrific events in London, three events. So Yes, no, uh, I, I managed, to, uh, managed to sort of uh, catch a little, bit, little, little glimpse on Twitter and so on. Okay, okay. Um, Maybe next time. I, yes, indeed, absolutely. Um, well, I, did, I did have a question with regards to Brexit uh, yep. first, which was you know, just your, your take on it, uh, sure. considering that a lot of the sort of general, well, not consensus, but a lot of the 
perception uh, in the country at the moment is that uh, it was a mistake. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wanted to get your thoughts on that. And also with regards to the Labour Party and Corbyn, um, what your thoughts are on him as well. Oh, that would take me a long time. Um, OK, well, let's start, <laughs> on, let's start on Brexit. I mean, basically, my view on Brexit is that it depends. It depends what the Brits do with it. Uh, I think the beauty of Brexit is that it gives Britain uh, control over its own destiny and control over its own future. But, but it can mess it up. It can screw it up completely. Uh, by electing Jeremy Corbyn, for example, or by erecting protectionist policies, or by outregulating the Europeans by increasing regulations and increasing controls and increasing panic over uh, over climate change and you know abandoning fossil fuel, all kinds of things you could do that would really wreck your economy. And um, on the other hand, what Brexit has done is it made it possible for 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 Britain to lower regulations, dramatically reduce all those burdensome, oppressive uh, regulations that came from the European Union. It would also allow uh, Britain to have free trade agreements with countries like China, the United States, Canada, although I'm not sure the United States would be interested in one, but but uh, all kinds of countries around the world without having to get approval from the Europeans who are not exactly have not exactly shown themselves to be pro-free trade. Indeed, uh, England, if it had any brains uh, would do what Adam Smith suggested, which is basically to lower tariffs to zero and and let other countries worried about their tariffs uh, and, and, and stop trying to negotiate deals, just lower tariffs to zero. But of course, I don't believe the UK will do that. Uh, the UK could reduce financial regulations. It could encourage banks to stay by, by making it very attractive for them to be there. They could reduce their corporate income tax even further to zero. They could do a lot of things that the European Union would have deemed uncompetitive and, and, and gone after them for and, and penalized them for. Now that they, once they get out of the European Union, they can determine their own destiny. But I fear, I fear that instead of that, uh, Britain is going to become more protectionist, more, more, uh, build walls in a sense, more protectionist in terms of goods, more protectionist in terms of capital, more protectionist in terms of immigration. And, and as a consequence, I think, I think that the, the British economy could, could face a disaster, you know, that it hasn't seen since, since the, the socialist era of the 1960s and 1970s, where there was a massive brain drain out of the UK because of, uh, of the socialist policies of the government. So, you know, I, I don't know what, what, what do I make of Brexit? I would have voted for it because of the possibility, even if it's slightly remote, that future governments will actually do the right thing. I know a lot of people in England who are very optimistic and believe that that is indeed what is going to happen. I wish them luck. I hope it's true. And, uh, and, and I love coming to England. I love coming to London. I love the UK. Uh, you know, it's, it's a fun place to be. So I'm, I'm certainly hopeful that good things are going to happen. I, I'm just not, you know, I'm just not convinced of that. So a yes on Brexit but with lots and lots and lots of question marks and caution and and knowing that there's only one good path to pursue, which is the path towards more freedom, more trade, more liberalization. So I don't know if you had a follow-up question on Brexit, and then I can say a few words on Jeremy Corbyn, and then and then I've got three other callers on the line. 
No, no, actually, I think with regards to Brexit, I, I kind of completely agree with you on that. It's, uh, okay, it's exactly, a, it should be taken as a good, great opportunity, I think, in, in my opinion, because yeah. I, I happen to work in the financial services industry, and I, I totally agree with that. Um, yeah. I think, so, uh, and Jeremy Corbyn, look... Party could do more with, yeah, so, yeah, yeah I mean, the Conservative Party needs to do more, and it, but, but the problem is the Conservative Party in England is is ruled right now, or... or uh, led right now by a woman who believes in nothing, who who doesn't have, as, as, a, as somebody who really knows British politics told me, doesn't have a liberal, liberal in the old sense, liberal in the liberty sense, doesn't have a liberal bone in her body, who doesn't know what freedom is, doesn't know what free trade is. She's a complete pragmatic, a, a pragmatic woman who, who, who wouldn't know freedom if it hit her in the face. But uh, but that's what you have. I mean, uh, it, it would be nice to have a Margaret Thatcher leading the Conservative Party today, but that is not the case. And, and there's nobody that I know in the Conservative Party who who is significantly better, except for, I mean, I, I, I think, but but he would never get elected, which is Daniel Hannan. I think if Daniel Hannan, uh, the, M, the European MP, uh, the British MP for the European Parliament, it, it, you know, if he were running things, I would be very, very optimistic. Uh, okay, quickly, quickly, Jeremy, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, then we're going to take a break and then we'll get to the other callers. Jeremy Corbyn is uh, a, a disaster, a socialist, an apologist for Chavez in Venezuela, uh, a, a, an apologist for every socialist regime of the last 30 years. Uh, not a very intelligent person from everything I gather. Uh, it, just a, just a buffoon and a clown. And, uh, and it, it would be an unbelievable disaster. If uh, if the if the British people actually voted him prime minister, uh, you know, early on when he became the head of the Labour Party, I don't think anybody quite believed that somebody as clownish and as ridiculous as he even there were rebellions within the party to try to get rid of him. Uh, but he is a survivor. He somehow managed to survive, and he somehow managed to make himself popular. I think. I think primarily because of May and the Conservatives' weakness. I, I think they responded poorly to terrorism. I think they didn't have a good response uh, to the to the terrorist attacks in London, and that led to an increase in popularity of of Corbyn. I think also, uh, you know, he's offered people a lot of free stuff, particularly students, free education, free this, free that, uh, and and of course, you know, socialism still deeply appeals to young people because it's consistent with the morality, with the ethical code we're all brought up with, the ethical code of altruism, which I've talked many times about and I'll talk more about in the future. So, yeah, I think I think Corbyn would be a disaster. Uh, he, he hates the financial industry. Your job would be in peril. I think all the banks and investment banks in London would be in peril and, and they might consider moving. He wants to nationalize stuff. Uh, nobody knows the history of Great Britain. It, it turns out because the last time stuff was nationalized in the 60s and 70s, Britain was it, it was just a disaster economically. All right, uh, Mayank, thanks for calling. Hopefully, I'll get to meet you next time I'm in London and next time I, I, I do a talk, which will probably be early next year. So see you then. All right, uh, you're listening to Iran Book Show. We're going to take a quick break now. We're on the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Yaron Brooks Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Yaron Brooks. 
All right, we're back, and uh, I, I, I've got three callers on the line, Alex, Dom, and Julie. And, and Alex, Dom, and Julie, I'm not going to take you in the order on which you called. Uh, I'm, I'm going to take you based on the topics you want to talk about. And Alex, you're probably going to have to wait until the, after the next break. I, I'm going to take Julie soon and then Dom. But before I do that, I just want to comment on, on some stuff that's being said on the chat here, which is about globalism. Uh, this term has become very popular among uh, particularly pro-Trump and and uh, anti-leftists and so on. And and it, it it's a term that is a complete package deal, and Ayn Rand would be horrified by the term. Uh, globalism means nothing because it combines two completely contradictory ideas into one concept, which is exactly what Ayn Rand rejected as package dealing, as anti-concepts. What are the two terms? One is it, 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 it combines, um, the idea of, uh, global government, of world government, which no objectivist, Ayn Rand was against. I'm against. Everybody's against. Nobody wants, except for some people on the radical left. Nobody actually, nobody actually, um, you know, nobody actually believes in, um, in world government who actually believes in liberty. And the second thing it combines is free trade. Uh, and I'm absolutely 100% for free trade. NAFTA is a good deal. Every single economic study out there shows NAFTA. Trade with China has been an unmitigated huge benefit, huge, like a Donald Trump, huge benefit to American workers, American consumers, and particularly the American poor. There is probably one of the things that have saved the U.S. economy from the evil regulations and controls that the American government has placed on Americans over the last 30 years has been trade with China. It has lowered the price of goods. It has made producing stuff in America cheaper. It has made consuming stuff in America cheaper. <sighs> trade is good. You know how you know trade is good? Because we buy Chinese stuff. And we buy Chinese stuff because it's good for us to buy Chinese stuff. We wouldn't buy it if it was bad for us. That's the essential nature of trade. So Ayn Rand would have been horrified by the anti-trade mentality that, that, that Donald Trump projects and that many of his supporters project. She would have been horrified. Her view of trade was exactly what I said, the United States unilaterally lowering Tariffs to zero, not better trade deals, not negotiating better trade. There is no such thing as an America first stance on trade. An America first stance on trade is no government intervention on trade. No government intervention in trade. The government has no business who I buy my stuff from, at what price I buy my stuff from the government has no place in intervening in my decisions whether I buy it from from uh, uh, Mexico or from China or from Alabama it's none of the government's business freedom means freedom from government coercion where they tell me I have to buy American that is the most anti-American thing possible is for an American government to tell us where to buy our stuff from now if there's an enemy a real military enemy to the United States, let's say like Iran or North Korea, then yeah, then, then the government can stop you from buying stuff because by trading, you are helping yourself and you're also helping the other side. 
and, and, and this 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 idea this 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 nutty crazy I, I'm sorry I get I get emotional about this I apologize this irrational idea this anti-scientific idea this anti-liberty anti-freedom idea that somehow the federal government should manage trade is absolutely unequivocally wrong immoral and wrong if you uh, if you are uh, if you read Ayn Rand she is for trade and in that sense she's she's for globalization of trade and in that sense if that's what it means to be a globalist she was a globalist she hated the idea of regulations from the UN she hated the idea of world government and as I as I do I hate the UN the United States should leave the UN as soon as possible but the idea that she would be against trade or that I am that I should be against trade because I'm for freedom is turning the world upside down upside down it's placing nationalism the pseudo interests of the state above the interests of the individual again let me repeat this it is none of the state's business who I employ who I buy stuff from where I buy it from what the nature of the stuff is unless it constitutes a military physical threat to the citizens of the United States. So I can't transact with enemies, but then declare war, then declare it's an enemy. China, as far as I can tell, is not an enemy of the United States. Poland is not an enemy of the United States. Mexico and Canada are not enemies of the United States, and therefore trade should, with those countries should be completely unfettered. There should be no government policy about trading. Zero zero there should be no regulations about outsourcing zero no government regulations about where people work no government regulations about what people consume that's what freedom is about and if that means that that affects the u.s economy negatively which it does not it does not freedom is more important than economics freedom is more important than economics so if it affects the U.S. economy negatively, it does, but it doesn't. If you study economics, you know that. If you read Adam Smith, you know that. If you read von Mises, if you read the Austrian economists, you know that. If you read, go watch some video clips of Milton Friedman explain this. I mean, he is unequivocally, unequivocally pro-trade. Zero, zero barriers to trade. Again, if globalism means world government, if globalism is about socialism, then of course Ayn Rand wasn't for it. But if globalism means trade, then she was. Globalism as a concept is meaningless. Stop using it. It doesn't mean anything. It combines good ideas like free trade with bad ideas like world government and socialism. All right, we're going to take the call from Julie quickly. Julie, hi, you have a story about Poland, but you have to make it quick. Hello, Jan. I found a book, um, Story of a Secret State by Jan Karski. Uh, okay. He was, uh, uh, worked in the Polish underground in World War II. His cool. story is harrowing. He escaped the massacre of Kate, Kaden, I believe it's called. Okay. Um, yeah. He was an officer, uh, in the, uh, in the Polish army and he changed uniforms to hide his rank. Because they were killing the officers. So he changed and, uniform. That's right. He changed uniform to Soviet Union. Because yes, the Soviet he, Union, 
at the end of World War II, the Soviet Union took, uh, oh no, in the middle of World War II, the Soviet Union took all the Polish generals and basically, and officers and lined them up and shot them all. He just yes. killed them all. And he, this man, uh, he, in, in this book that I found that is just a, a goldmine of information of what the Polish people did, um, yeah. and not all of them were involved, but the, even the civilians were hiding the underground. Oh, yeah. And the underground was not necessarily connected. They, they had different arteries to it, so no one knew anyone's name. It was just so, it's very intriguing, his story. He, he actually went to the Allies and told them, this is what's happening to the Jews in Poland. Yep. And even FDR said, well, how are the horses being treated? Yeah, no, I, was, I mean, sure. FDR, FDR was awful in so many respects. Mm-hmm. He was just a Absolutely. bad, bad and, guy. And uh, this is it, ex- a, yeah. a very good, this man, in, in his story, and many like him, is a story that needs to be out there to find out. The, the Polish people have suffered for decades and decades. And this is know. why I think I think they're receptive to a new message and they're receptive to liberty. Tell me again, what what is the name of the book? Story of a Secret State by Jan Karski. Okay, wonderful. Story of a Secret State by Jan Karski tells the story of uh, uh, of what Poland suffered through under the Nazis yes, and, and then under under communism. And, and under the uh, under the. The Nazi uh, takeover under World War II, when the when the Germans came sure. in, uh, the sure. Nazis came in and, and sure. uh, took over Poland. And it's it's spellbinding. It's amazing. It's sad. It's inspiring. It's everything rolled up into one. And and it it's a testament to the strength of the Polish people. And it should be a testament to those of us who who aspire to be like that. Great. All right. Thanks a lot, Julie. I really appreciate it. And uh, yes, you know, these books are inspiring. You should you should read them. And the Polish people were many of them, not all of them, but many of them were incredibly heroic. And and I think today, uh, in their pursuit of freedom and their pursuit of liberty, uh, are heroic again. All right, you've been listening to Iran Book Show here on the Blaze Radio Network. We'll be back after this break. Applying the principles of rational self-interest and individual rights on your radio. It's the Yaron Brooks Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to a discussion of radical fundamental principles of freedom, rational self-interest, laissez-faire capitalism, and individual rights. The Yaron Brooks Show starts now. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the second hour of the Iran Book Show. And we've been talking about Poland globalization. We've been talking about Brexit and, uh, and about the Polish people, the, the heroism. And, uh, you know, the fact that they are moving in the right direction. And uh, I, I think that right now they are, you know, they're open to new ideas in ways that, unfortunately, I think a lot of American audiences are not. Uh, and and uh, in a way that a lot of Western European uh, Western Europeans uh, are not. All right, we're going to take a, a, a call. We, we've had a number of people on the line for quite a while. They've been waiting, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes, oh, 41 minutes. Oh, my God. All right, so Dom, Dom uh, from Minnesota, uh, you've got you've got a, a, a Russia Russia story for us. Yeah, you're on. Thanks for taking my call. First time caller stumbled on your show walking my dog this morning. It's <laughs> interesting. <laughs> so, you know, you answered my first question. I was going to ask you if you're from Poland, and you, you just said that a while ago. 
No, well, I'm not I, from I'm Poland. Not I'm in Poland. Oh, you're not. But I, I, oh, you're I'm in, in Poland Florida. right now, but I, I live in uh, I live in Southern California right now, though. I'm probably going to no, move No, no, but soon. where are you from originally, though? I'm originally from Israel. I'm originally oh, Israel. from Israel. Okay, I, I, yes. I should have known that from the name. Yes. But you do live in New Israeli York name. now? What's that? Do you live in New York? No, I live in uh, I live in Southern California. I live in Orange County, California. Okay. Because I detected somewhat of a New York accent, I love the way you speak. So. <laughs> oh, I well, a lot of people hate it. So I'm glad that you like it. Yeah. I, I have, <laughs> I, I, I have a, uh, I have a mishmash of an accent. It doesn't really belong anywhere. It's it's picked up. I don't up. care. I like it. I like. Well, I, like I appreciate that. Sound. Thank you, Dom, yeah. and I hope you, but, you know, I hope you continue yeah. listening to the show. Yeah, I, I teach for a living, and I have a student who's from Moscow, Russia. He's been with me for uh, for about two years now. You know, he was, you know, him and I, when we find time, uh, we talk about how his uh, life in Russia was. You know, he went to high school there. He hated every minute of it because of the way the things were being taught, and he was being to shut up and sit down or whatever. And now he says, if I get the opportunity, I'm going to be a student of life in He's amazed at the opportunity to go to become uh, somebody in this country and go to school. And, you know, the, the challenge we have with the American education system these days is that people from Poland and Russia, they come in here. And the problem is they, they bring with them the thirst for freedom and liberty and things like that. And yeah. probably yeah. Our, our system has turned into turned poor cold water on that. And, you know, the, all the thirst for freedom they bring from these communist countries. America isn't easy. You have to want it real bad from yep, the inside. Yep, yep, and the absolutely. drive to make it work. And we are pouring cold water on that as a system. I don't know how to fix that because all our young people are being made into mush. And uh, I, I, agree, I agree with you. I, I think, Don, that, that a whole attitude towards immigration, a whole attitude towards <clears throat> immigrants who come here uh, seeking a better life, seeking freedom, and then they come here and what they find is a regulated, controlled economy that doesn't like immigrants, uh, where the government has much more power than I think people outside the United States imagine that America would have. I, I think we are a nation in decline. And, and it's, you know, I, it, it rips me apart because I'm an immigrant. I came to the United States because I believed in what America represents. I still believe in what America represents. And I watch it. I watch it decline into this uh, closed-minded, uh, you know, uh, silly nationalism, um, it, it, you know, it, it, it really is sickening, and, and it's sad. And, and I think the thing that, that reinvigorates, often reinvigorates the spirit of Americanism are those immigrants who come from oppressive cultures and they value the freedom that is America more than Americans do because Americans kind of take it for granted. And they're willing yeah, to give I, it up. I had a chance. I had a. I had a chance to read Ayn Rand a while ago, and I don't remember everything Excellent. on it. But I think well, you should reread it. I mean, yeah, you should reread it. it. Every time you read Ayn Rand, you learn something new every single time, you, no matter you, what you age. You got it. You 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 uh, you just mentioned that. I'm going to go back. I was going to try to find the book over the break. I didn't. But <laughs> you know, I think what we're trying to do here is we're trying to inculcate equality of outcome rather than saying, okay, nobody's going to be equal in terms of it depends on how much yep. effort you put yep. into it. Yep. And the, that and was the. the that was. That was the topic of my talk here in Poland today. The, the, the yeah, evil, the outright evil yeah. of equality of outcome. But how do you sell that to people that have, don't have jobs? And if you look at Facebook, Facebook, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is, is I, I mean, he's a very successful entrepreneur, but he is, you know, just suggesting that people need to be paid minimum wage. To no, 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 no. People need jobs. And, and, and what would I suggest is that we, we create economic policies to create jobs under capitalism. 
there are more jobs created than there are people, and there's always an opportunity for work under capitalism. Dom, I really appreciate your call. Keep listening. It's every Saturday at this time, and you can also uh, catch it on any podcasting app. We'll, we'll do, uh, have, have a great Thanksgiving. Thank you. You too. You too. And, and all our listeners have great Thanksgiving. All right. So, uh, I mean, Dom brings up a, a lot of issues here. And look, capitalism creates jobs. And if we want uh, the people in America who are unemployed or underemployed, if we want them to really have gained back their self-esteem and gain back their commitment to the system that is America, what we need is to embrace policies of capitalism. Capitalism means free trade. Capitalism means government doesn't intervene uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, in, in what we do and how we do it. Uh, let me just say something about this concept that people talk about a lot. And then, I, and then after the next break, we are going to take Alex's call from California, I promise. And then I want to say a few things about other topics. But let me just say something about globalism. Uh, there is no such thing as globalism. Uh, it has become a, 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 a term that the right uses all the time and that promotes globalism as a mixture of, of a legitimate concept, which is uh, free trade with an illegitimate concept, which is world government and, and global citizenship. Uh, global citizenship, the, that idea is evil. World government, that idea is evil. Free trade, on the other hand, that is great. That is wonderful. That is fantastic. And uh, we should embrace free trade. And we should reject the idea of global and world citizenship, and we should reject the ideas of of world government and world regulatory bodies and all of that nonsense. So uh, the, the challenge, of course, is to convince people to adopt the principles of free trade, because you'd think that it'd be easy after after all the economic knowledge that supposedly we have gained over all this period. But it seems that that is becoming uh, more and more and more difficult. I'll also say this, I mean, and I encourage you to read Ayn Rand because I think a lot of people don't read her and then attribute ideas to her that didn't belong to her. But I would encourage you to read an essay by Ayn Rand called Global Balkanization. And, and, and in that essay, she expresses how anti-nationalism she was. Now, I am for an American-first foreign policy but not trade. I am for American first foreign policy, which means defending ourselves against our enemies, crushing our enemies, placing American interests before anything else when it comes to our security and our defense. But when it comes to trade, the only, and I'll say this again, and then this is it, the only appropriate policy of the United States government when it comes to trade is no policy, no tariffs, no restrictions, no preferences, no position. We should be allowed to trade as individuals, as companies, with whomever we want, as long as they are not explicit enemies of the United States. All right, I think I think that's enough of that. All right, let, let's take let's take the call from Alex now. Hey, Alex, Alex is calling from California. Hi, we've had a pretty hey, we've had a pretty diverse uh, diverse group of people calling in today. Uh, what's up? Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I have a kind of more broader uh, philosophical question uh, concerning objectivism. Um, it, well, first of all, it, in in religion, there's a there's kind of a, a prescribed way to inculcate the next generation to hold the same religious values to yep. to promote those values. So, from for objectivism, um, I guess what's the how and why. 
Um, for instance, if if my primary moral concern is rational self interest, is my own is my own selfish interest. Um, what what's my motivation for wanting to fight for the values, the, the freedom, everything you've been talking about all day or all morning? Um, what what's the reason? Because you live to, in this world to care about putting that in the next generation. Well, because you live in this world, and, you, and, you, and yeah, and you live. So first, it's it's life right now. You live in this world. You you will outlive. Um, you know, you're going to live a long life. So several generations are going to be born while you're still alive. Uh, the more rotten the education those uh, generations get, the more rotten is likely to be your life during that period of time. So you can't divorce yourself from the society in which you live. You live in a society that, to a large extent, is dictated by what younger generations are going to do. So you have an incentive to that. Now, if you're talking about future generations, that is, if you're talking about yeah. what self-interest has to say about what people do after you're dead, well, I mean, that's, that's a more complex question. And, and, and here I would say two things. What, one, if it depends if you have kids or not. Uh, so if you have kids, I think you care about future generations, at least one or two generations into the future, because you love your kids and you want them to have a good life. Not because right. after you're dead, you'll know, but while you're alive, you care about your kids and you don't want to project their future as being horrible. You want to project their future as being positive and you're willing to fight for that future. If you don't have kids, there's still an element of caring about what happens after you die. Oh, again, only because of, of what you experience while you're living. And that is that, I mean, as an objectivist, I love human beings. I mean, in a sense, I love humanity. I, I, I love what humanity is, what is possible. I love achievement. I love success. And I love projecting that into the future. And I love thinking about future, the future world and, and, and how wonderful life could be. And how, love, how wonderful human beings will live, even if I don't actually get to experience it. I think the joy right now of projecting, wow, when people live under freedom, under real liberty, when they really realize what, that, that is so cool. Um, I care about human beings, so, so, so I want to do that. Now, I, in my case, I also love the fight. I, I, I love teaching people. I love educating. I love trying to convey these ideas. Um, and, uh, you know, and all of that, I think, is uh, is a value. But in a sense, there is a deeper sense in which I don't give a damn about future generations, particularly if you reflect out three, four, like the environmentalist. Oh, 100 years from now, what's yeah. going to happen to humanity? I don't really give a damn about 100 years from now. I couldn't care less. Now, I happen to believe that freedom is good for 100 years from now, and I, and I think the environmentalists would destroy the world for people 100 years from now. But I can't think about what's good for people 100 years from now. I don't. You know, I don't care. Uh, I, I care about my life, my kid's life, maybe my grandkid's life. I care about projecting into a future that I can foresee. I can't care that much about a future I cannot foresee into. Does that make sense? Great. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate the answer, and I uh, hope that you come back home to Southern California sometime soon. I, I will. I will be home for Thanksgiving. Like All right. That. Uh, and, and, all and, right. And, well, happy yeah. Thanksgiving. And, and and to keep the sun shining for me. Uh, yeah. You know, I guess we don't have to worry about that. The sun will don't shine. Don't have to worry for me. about that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Great. All right, Alex. Thanks. Thanks for calling. Okay, we're, we're going to take a a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about Zimbabwe. We're an international theme today. I know because of all this globalism going on, is Zimbabwe something really, really important and good? I think happened in Zimbabwe uh, this week. And then I want to talk about all these sex scandals 
all these sex standards. Okay, you're listening to your Ron Book Show on the Blaze Radio Network. We'll be back right after this. Best-selling author, prolific media contributor, PhD in finance. This is the Yaron Brook Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Iran Brook Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Hey, this is Iran Brook. Uh, we've been talking about Poland. We've been talking about trade. We've been talking about globalism. We've even been talking about heroic poles during wars and, and so on. I want to shift topics right now because I think something important has happened in a place where most Americans don't pay much attention to, but but I think that it's worth. It's worth at least recognizing when something good happens in the world. And that is in the country of Zimbabwe. Uh, now, for those of you who don't know, and I know, uh, you know, people don't know uh, geography very well, and they certainly don't seem to know African geography very well. It's not exactly a continent we spend a lot of time contemplating or thinking about. But human beings live there, and, and sometimes good things happen even in Africa. And uh, Zimbabwe is a country that is just to the north of South Africa. It is a beautiful country. It is a country uh, with vast plains, with with you know all kind of roaming animals. It's it's just a gorgeous example of what Africa uh, had and has to offer. Uh, and uh, I was there. I was actually in uh, Zimbabwe uh, before it was Zimbabwe. I, I visited Zimbabwe as a, as a little boy, uh, as a young boy, not so little, young nine, I think, eight or nine, in 1969. So I was eight. I was born in 61. So uh, 1969, you know what? It might have been 1970. I don't know. I was eight or nine. Anyway, I, I visited Zimbabwe. In those days, it was called Rhodesia. And in those days, it was ruled by uh, by a white government uh, that imposed a, an apartheid-like system on uh, Zimbabwe. It was horrible. They treated uh, the black citizens of Zimbabwe in uh, in horrible fashion. Um, and uh, but it, it was it was too uh, it was truly a spectacular place. And, uh, you know, they have the Victoria Falls, which is some of the most beautiful waterfalls in the world. And they had game of reserves with some of the most amazing opportunities, amazing, amazing opportunities to see wildlife. And uh, and I was there. I had actually a family there. I had uh, I had uh, I guess cousins, distant I don't know, second, third, whatever cousins, who lived in Zimbabwe and actually owned big chunks of uh, of land in there. And, and in those days, Zimbabwe was actually the breadbasket of Europe. Uh, of Europe, Jesus, uh, it was the breadbasket of Africa. So it, it it basically exported massive amounts of of food. And uh, in the 1970s, there was a Zimbabwe independence movement, in a sense, to get rid of the the white government and to establish a government of blacks, just a parallel, if you will, to the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. And in Zimbabwe, it was actually more successful and, and achieved uh, the overthrow of the white government uh, at least over 10 years before that happened in South Africa. But... 
Whereas in South Africa, they had uh, Nelson Mandela, who was a relative moderate, who did not impose uh, socialism and did not become an authoritarian thug. In Zimbabwe, uh, uh, Robert Mugabe, who, who was the leader of the uh, black resistance to the white government, actually uh, actually uh, took over. Uh, you know, actually took over these. Uh, it took over the country, and in 1981, I think, in and ultimately in a peaceful transition. Although he, 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 there was some, there was quite a bit of violence before that. And uh, went on to basically destroy this country, line his pockets, and, and absolutely destroy the country. I have, in my position, uh, I think it is a hundred billion dollar note, a hundred billion dollar note, and you couldn't even buy bread with that. Uh, Zimbabwe people were using just about ten years ago were using paper money as toilet paper because it was actually cheaper to use money. As toilet paper than to use, than to go and buy toilet paper and use it as toilet paper. That's how bad uh, things were. Now it's important to remember that when Mugabe actually rose to power, uh, the left in America and ma- many black activists uh, celebrated that. Stevie Wonder had a song called uh, "Master Blaster Jamming" in which he talked about peace coming to Zimbabwe and how wonderful it was. Uh, Bob Marley in 1979 recorded a song called "Zimbabwe." Which began every man got a right to decide to decide his own destiny, and in this judgment, there's no partiality. So arms in arm, with arms, we'll fight this little struggle because that's the only way we can overcome our little trouble. That's Bob Marley, uh, and uh, and Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor in his uh, stand-up comedy routine, "Black people kicked ass over there," he said in 1983. They happy too. You walk down the street, they just smile. This is about Zimbabwe. What's interesting about this, and, and they were justifiably all happy, I guess, because apartheid was defeated and apartheid was evil. Uh, but at the same time, uh, at the same time, they did not criticize Mugabe when Mugabe became a dictator, when Mugabe destroyed the lives of, of, of blacks as well as white, of whites all over Zimbabwe, where he impoverished his people, where he made them dirt poor, uh, no, I didn't hear any of these people coming out and criticizing him and, 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 and making any kind of deal. Uh, indeed, Mugabe is now 93 years old, and he was going to pass on his dictatorship to his 52-year-old wife, Grace Mugabe, who, from everything I understand, is a monster, a real monster. And uh, Mugabe, of course, was a monster, and, and it's, it's tragic. About 10 years ago, there was a peace deal cut between the opposition and Mugabe, and there was a new constitution, there were going to be democratic election, and, and uh, everybody, you know, because there were, there were sanctions imposed on Zimbabwe because of Mugabe's tyranny. And uh, the world watched as uh, Mugabe did nothing. He basically ignored the new constitution, ignored all the provisions, ignored what was negotiated, and, and continued his authoritarian dictatorial regime. And they did absolutely nothing. And, and nobody said a word. And it's, it, this is typical of the left. They never, never, never complain about the real dictators, the, the real monsters out there. And Mugabe was a monster, a, a monster who starved his own people. And at the same time, lined his own pockets. His wife, I think, is called something like, uh, what was his wife called? Uh, you know, I don't have it here, but something about Gucci lady or something like that because of all the, all the beautiful products she buys as her, as her people, uh, are starving completely, completely, completely.
uh, starving. Um, you know, so so uh, what's happened over the last few days is there's been a coup. The military has basically put Mugabe and his wife under house arrest. Uh, they are talking about new elections. They are talking about a new era for Zimbabwe. Uh, you know, hopefully putting putting this whole um, this whole episode behind them and and and, and getting rid of of Mugabe for good, uh, for good. So so here's a man who was adored by the left, uh, who who basically represented the darkest features of. Uh, of leftist ideology, of authoritarianism and dictatorships. Ultimately, the left turned against him for a while, and then there were there were there was negotiations, and he ignored them, and now he's gone. He's gone, and and that's good. That's something to celebrate, and that's something to feel good about. But at the same time, the real question now starts: What's going to replace him? Who's going to replace him? I mean, the tragedy of Africa is that they go from one dictator, one awful dictator, to the next awful dictator, from one authoritarian to the next authoritarian, from one, uh, you know, the equivalent of socialist fascist to another socialist fascist with, without it ever ending, w- without any letdown. So um, I hope, not just because I used to have relatives there and I visited this country, but because I care about human beings and I, and I like to see them free and prosperous. We can hope that the next government of Zimbabwe actually leaves their people relatively free. Leaving them completely free is a little science fiction. By the way, one of the things that happened after, this is a good sign, one of the things that happened after the hyperinflation, hyper, hyper, hyperinflation of Zimbabwe is they abandoned their currency. They, they shut down the central bank in a sense and they started using dollars and South African rand and other currency. And that turned out to be a huge boon for their economy. Freedom works. Freedom in currency works. Getting rid of authoritarian dictators works. So let's hope the Zimbabwean people have learned something. Let's wish them all the best and wish them luck in their new adventure. Let's hope the military converts into a some form of freedom-loving government. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk about sex scandals, left and right. You're listening to Run Book Show on the Blaze Radio Network. You won't hear traditional political views here. This is the Yaron Brooks Show on the Blaze Radio Network. All right, we're back. Uh, welcome, everybody. And for those of you in video, I, I apologize for the uh, low bandwidth. Uh, but you can listen on theblaze.com slash radio. Uh, the sound, I think, sound quality is perfect. So uh, uh, video, we're struggling today because of the low-quality Wi-Fi I have in this particular hotel room. Uh, but uh, but because the audio is running through a wired connection, we are golden on the audio on the audio side. Um, all right. Well, I, I want to talk about all these, uh, you know, all these sex scandals that are now breaking. Uh, we've got uh, Judge Moore in, uh, 
in, uh, though I hate to call him judge, he doesn't deserve the title, but uh, in, in Alabama, we've got Al Franken now uh, on the left. We've got all kinds of Hollywood celebrities and all kinds of politicians and left and right and center. And, and it, it's fascinating for me to, to just watch this, you know, to sit on the sidelines and watch how, you know, people are being basically destroying themselves, destroying each other. Uh, where people are clustering around their tribal associations, uh, you know, where feminists are writing in to defend Al Franken because he's a leftist, so it's okay for leftists to, uh, you know, to, to sexually harass women, but it's not okay for right-wing people to uh, sexually harass women, and the right is doing exactly the same thing. So because Judge Moore is Judge Moore and because, um, because we have a... Uh, because we have this situation where, uh, uh, you know, uh, he, everybody, everybody on the right now doesn't trust anything the media brings out. So they trusted the New York Times when it was Weinstein because Weinstein was a leftist, but they don't trust the Washington Post when it comes to Judge Moore because the Washington Post is left and Judge Moore is and supposedly one of the good guys. So, uh, so, so Judge Moore could come out and say, don't believe anything you read in the media. They're all out to get me. It's all non-objective nonsense. And all the people, a lot of people in the right are going, yes, 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 that's right. It's all a conspiracy to take him out. And, uh, and it's just stunning to me how tribal everybody has really, uh, become. Um, and, uh, how, how tribal, uh, they approach this, this whole issue. And of course, this is not new, right? If you remember uh, when, uh, Anita, Anita, Anita what? Oh my God. Anita something came out and, uh, attacked, uh, claimed that, um, that uh, uh, Judge Thomas uh, had done all these horrible things and, and sexually harassed her with, of course, no evidence and no proof at all. Um, the right rallied around Thomas and the left rallied around her. But then when all kinds of women came out to claim that Bill Clinton harassed them, even raped one of them, and, and uh, there was actually evidence there, and he actually admitted to some of it, certainly to the affair with Monica Lewinsky in the closet in the White House. Oh, but it wasn't sex because it was something else. All right. So, uh, the left suddenly forgot all about it. There was actually an article by Gloria Steinem, the, the famous feminist who, who supposedly is there to, um, to protect, uh, women's rights and, and, uh, to, to fight for, for women who are being abused. There's Gloria Steinem defending Bill Clinton and claiming that because he's such a good lefty, we should give him a little bit more leeway. I wonder if she, I wonder if she still supports that article. Although I saw an article this week saying about the same thing about Al Franken. We don't want Al Franken to resign. We don't want Al Franken to resign because Al Franken is such a, is such a positive force for the good. And even though he harasses women, even though he did this horrible things to this woman, we're willing to forgive that because he's such a good guy. Oh my God. Oh my God. People, are you listening to yourselves? And again, this is both on the left and on the right. You're getting this tribalism par excellence. It's those guys over there. They're the evil ones. Oh no, it's those guys over there. They're the evil ones. And, 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 and we're talking here about something that is, that should be unthinkable, that should be unacceptable, that should be rejected. Now, let me just say this about sexual harassment. Unfortunately, it is a very vague concept. 
unfortunately, what counts as harassment. Anita Hill, sorry, Anita Hill was who accused Clarence Thomas. I apologize for having forgotten her family name. Anyway, sexual harassment is a very, very tricky thing. It, it, and it's, and it's, it's very worrisome because women can claim it without any proof and, and they're often believed. And sometimes they're right. Sometimes what they say is true, but sometimes what they say is not true. I'm not sure I believe Anita Hill. I believe the women who accused Bill Clinton. I believe the women who accused uh, uh, Moore because I think he's a creep. Uh, so I'm inclined to believe it. We, we don't have the full evidence. But uh, it, it's very tricky. And when I was a professor at, at Santa Clara University, I remember I always, and this is in the 90s, so this is a long time ago, I always kept the door open when there was a student in my office, particularly if it was a female student, but really any student in my office, I always kept the door open. And I, I, I hoped that there were people in the corridor and I hoped that there were people in the offices around me because you never know. You just never know. If the door's closed and somebody accuses you of something, it's just horrible. And there are mean people out there who would accuse you of awful things, whether you do it or not. Unfortunately, I think that sexual predators and men who get a kick out of uh, using power over women um, have benefited, you know, have, have kind of benefited from that because, because they have, they have, uh, uh you know, I think abused uh, their power relationship with women. They have, they have been assaults on women. They, you know, as Weinstein and a lot of these guys look, look at the photo that Al Franken, that was taken of Al Franken. One wonders who was the guy taking the photo. This is a grown man. We're not talking about children. We're not talking about boys. We're not talking about teenagers who do these foolish things. But if you've seen the photo, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, this is just horrific. And and really what this is is, is men using sex uh, to put women down, to, to using sex as power, uh, using sex as, as, a, as a way to gain a false sense of self-esteem. And, and again, it, it's associated with power. And influence, and um, you know, and 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 we shouldn't forgive that. We shouldn't tolerate it. It is unacceptable. It's unacceptable for anybody to behave that way towards another human being, towards another human being. So, um, you know, uh, these on the one hand. These sex scandals are very positive things because they're, they're showing that people are standing up and not tolerating this nonsense and not putting up uh, with, uh, you know, with harassing women and not putting up with men who use their power uh, to put down and to humiliate other people, men or women. On the other hand, it's also a very dangerous time because uh, it, it opens up opportunities for people to get vendettas over other people. Uh, and this is why we look for corroborating evidence. We look for a pattern. We look for several women do, uh, you know, saying something about a man, not just one woman. And I think most of the cases that we've got right now um, have that. And then, of course, we've got a lot of men admitting that they did this. Uh, I forget the name of the comedian who has recently admitted to, to behaving in this in this kind of brutish way. And if this all leads to... Uh, better behavior among men, particularly men with power, then this will have been a, a very positive thing. Uh, what I fear is that it's also going to lead to uh, to men being more careful around women. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a good thing. 
Maybe it's not a good idea to hug your employees when you see them. Maybe maybe it's a good idea to keep the door open. Uh, maybe it's just a good idea to, to, to just keep a distance and make sure that any kind of physical content is physical content that people are want and not just a doing because of the because of uh, uh, because you're the boss, right? Because the, you know you're in a in a position of power uh, over them. So uh, you know here's where I very much sympathize with the uh, with the women in this, and um, I really I really hope we learn something from this. And but I also think that it's it's very interesting. Our attitudes, and let me just end with this. Bill Clinton is a creep, a monster. I mean, just a horrible, horrible, horrible human being. And for all the feminists and all the people who supported Hillary Clinton, what kind of a woman stands by a man like Bill Clinton, an accused rapist, an accused harasser, a man who had sex with in, with a much younger intern in a in a again a, a powerful man in a position of power exploiting. A young woman in the White House. What kind of woman stands by a man like that? A, a woman who is a power luster. A woman who doesn't care one iota about the well-being of people, but only cares about her own political future and own political, uh, political, uh, you know, uh, possibilities. She always wanted to be president. She always planned on running to be president. And she figured that she had to stand by her man in order to be successful that even though her man was, oh, unbelievably creepy monster when it came to sex. So uh, to all those people who like Hillary, that, just that, just her attitude towards her own husband, towards Bill Clinton, uh, should should trigger you into knowing what kind of a horrible woman she really was. And anybody who admires Bill Clinton, whoa. You know, I don't get it. I don't get it. I, I never got it. I never understood the attraction, and I know people are attracted to him. Uh, this guy was a sexual predator, and uh, the fact that the left and the fact that the feminist movement uh, was completely corrupted by him, by its support of Bill Clinton, um, they should be ashamed of themselves. They should not show their faces, the Gloria Steinems of the world, who defended and protected Bill Clinton, should never show their face in public again. Uh, it, it is disgraceful. And and if they do want to show their face in public, they should admit to making a mistake about him. They should admit to what a creep he is, and they should admit that his wife is just as equally responsible for the evils he committed because she backed him up. She protected him, and she served as a, a you know to cushion all the blows. All right, that's all I want to say about that topic. It's it's pretty. It's pretty awful, but somebody has to say it. Somebody has to, you know, you have to get rid of the, you know, I, I've seen, uh, I saw uh, Judge Moore's wife go out there and protect him, just like Hillary, just like Hillary. I mean, Judge Moore should not run for the Senate. You shouldn't vote for him if he runs for the Senate. His wife shouldn't be defending him. The guy is, again, a creep. And, and you know, I explained last time, last show, why I wouldn't vote for him anyway, because he has no regard for the Constitution of the United States, because he has no regard for the for the judiciary of the United States, and he does not deserve to be a U.S. senator. And it's going to be bad for Republicans because they're going to lose uh, one senator in the Senate, in a very, very close Senate. But the difference between 52 and 51 is not that great, and... Uh, 
they deserve to lose it. What can I say? They just deserve to lose it if they put up people like this. All right. Uh, when we come back, uh, a number of topics I want to talk about. Maybe maybe diversity and, and uh, the resignation of the VP for diversity at Apple. You're listening to Iran Book Show, and we'll be right back after this break. Israeli military veteran and radical for capitalism. It's the Yaron Brook Show on the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Yaron Brooks Show. Hi, everybody. Uh, final segment of the day. Hopefully, you've enjoyed the show. And if you've enjoyed the show, uh, you know, follow me. Uh, a lot of I put out a lot of content on a weekly basis, probably a video a day. Thank you for those of you who help edit those videos. Uh, a video a day, lectures all the time, uh, some short videos, some very long videos. Uh, I do this show plus another show uh, called Objective, Living Objectivism, which delves more into the objectivist philosophy rather than uh, the political issues of the day. So uh, please follow me on Facebook, like me on Twitter, or the other way around. I can't remember. I think it's like me on Facebook. Um, follow me on Twitter. Uh, you know, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Uh, you can find everything on my website, Yaron brookshow.com that's y-a-r-o-n-b-r-o-o-k show.com uh yeah follow me subscribe uh would love to see you on my facebook feed on my twitter feed and on youtube as well as everywhere else all right i, I got a couple of quick topics here that i thought would be interesting uh, kind of to wrap up by the way this is the, the, the segment, the last segment of the show that is always uh, open to callers. I, I forgot to kind of mention it all show long. Uh, I don't think we have uh, callers on the line right now. So, uh, so I'm just going to, you know, cover a couple of quick topics that I think you might find interesting and, uh, and, uh, we will go from there. Uh, there was a, a good article, um, uh, that I just saw today, I guess it was on, on this week in the Atlantic magazine, uh, called The Disappearing Right to Earn a Living. The Disappearing Right to Earn a Living. And it's actually based on a, uh, on a report published this week by the Institute for Justice. Now, the Institute for Justice, in my view, does some of the best pro-liberty work in the world, other than the Ayn Rand Institute. It is probably my favorite nonprofit organization. You should look them up. Institute for justice, just switch them. And they did a report, and, and this is on a topic that they've been working on for, for many, many years and actually doing a lot of excellent work to try to reverse the horrible situation in, in this cause. What they do is they sue in order to try to increase liberty and increase freedom. They sue against laws that they believe are anti-constitutional and anti-freedom, um, anti-freedom. And in this case, they put out a, a, a report about licensing about the fact that in America today, um, I don't know, three quarters of all jobs, three quarters of all jobs. No, well, maybe, maybe I'm exaggerating. Uh, but, uh, you know, a, a, 
not three quarters of all jobs. Okay, 20%, over 20%. Well, no, one in four, 25. Uh, no, it's three quarters. Three quarters of all jobs today. <laughs> Sorry, I'm confused. Uh, three quarters of all jobs today. Uh, one in four, 25%. Sorry. Okay, 25% of all jobs today require a license, a license from the government. In 1950s, one in 20, one in 20 jobs required an occupational license. So one in 20 American workers needed an occupational license. Today, 25% of all American employees need an occupational license in order to work. So in order to go and do your job, you need to get a license from the government. You need to be tested. You need to pay money. You need to fill in forms. You need to pass, you know, you need to pass a, a, an exam. I mean, it, 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 it's absurd. And some of the, some of the, some of the professions they list here are just insane. Just insane. So they look particularly at 100, 102 low income occupations across all 50 states in the District of Columbia. And they concluded that most of the 102 occupations are practiced in at least one state without a state license. So at least one state allows any particular one of these occupations to not have a state license. And shock of all shocks, nothing bad happens. You know, those states that don't require a license to shampoo hair, it turns out that the people shampooing your hair are not poisoning me, are not destroying my precious hair. They're just shampooing it. At least uh, uh, 23 occupation surveys were not licensed in at least 40 states, and nothing bad happened. Nothing bad happened. Um, all 50 states, uh, all 50 states license barbers, people who cut your hair. All 50 states. Now, why is that? Because scissors are a dangerous weapon. Because giving you a bad haircut is one of the worst things that could happen in your life, and you need the government to protect you from a bad haircut? Why do we license barbers, hair shampoos? In Louisiana, you need a license to be a florist. You need to pay $189 in order to become a florist. In California, and indeed in several states, in order to become a tree trimmer, tree trimmer, you need four years of experience. You have to pay $529 to the state, and you need to take two exams. In Maryland, it requires two years of training and one year of experience to be a tree trimmer. Luckily, I think my garden in California trims my trees without, without a license. Maybe because he's an illegal immigrant, he can get away with that. Um, I shouldn't have said that. Ugh. I don't know if he's an illegal immigrant. I hope he is. Um, uh, you know, so this is where we are in the country today. You need licenses for all of this, for all of this stuff. And you need to pay money and you need to take exams and you need to spend years of intern, internship. You need to intern for these professions. Now, now what does that, what does that mean? What does that mean? That means that poor people have fewer jobs. It means that poor people have to, who becomes a florist? Have to find $189 to pay the state and have, find the time. They're probably working two jobs just to make a living to take an exam to become a florist. It means poor people have to find $529 in California 
to pay for a license to trim trees and the time to take two exams, fill out forms, deal with the bureaucracy. It adds hundreds of days. I think, uh, I, I, I think uh, one example was uh, in Connecticut, a home entertainment installer is required to obtain a license from the state. It costs $185. You have to have a 12th grade education, complete a test, and accumulate one year of apprenticeship, one year of apprenticeship experience in the field. In other words, it takes you 475, adif- 575 additional days in order to become an installer of an entertainment system. We're killing, killing jobs in this country, killing jobs in this country. It's not the Chinese. It's not the Mexicans. It's not immigrants. We are killing jobs through these stupid regulations, these licensing laws that help nobody. All right, you've listened to your own book show. We're back every Saturday right here on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to the Yaron Brooks Show on the Blaze Radio Network.